We're not even in that. That's not, not even this season, Bob. No, you just, you just like slapped out a tuned in and didn't even blink a lot, blink an eye. Yeah. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Bob, 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 Bob. Hey, Bob. Hi, Dave. Uh, well, here we are yet again in the sound studio, season five, TID, DNB, PNM. You ready for it? Yeah. What's PNM? Peach and Maze. <laughs> Excellent. Ah! You got any acronyms for us this week? Um, IWW. Oh, yes. That's on your mind. I I got that text. Do you want to tell me, tell the, not me, tell the viewers what's been going on? Yeah. The viewership. The viewership, you know, the abstract viewership. Um, yeah, well, I got really inspired you know, the first percolations were coming from the show when Dan came to the show and we were talking about the IWW. And then I'm reading a history book about the labor history in California um, and the amount of sort of conditions, awful conditions of labor in California for the last 150 years, at least. And the IWW was a big force. In from about 1900 to like 1930, um, and they led a massive strike. There was an international strike, but it was centered in Los Angeles. It was a maritime strike, and they were winning. They're winning that strike. The police, they're fighting the police, um, and the um, it was actually both maritime and agriculture. So they were trying to beat the big shipping corporations and big agriculture in, in California. And the thing, because the establishment couldn't win, they brought in vigilantes. And this was during the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the Western states. And the Klan would come in and burn meeting halls or headquarters or even attack people in their homes. And um, that sort of subsided the strike Although they, you know, of course they won some, some demands. Um, but so I looked up the IWW and they're still actually, you know, after going into uh, underground for a long time, they're back and they're leading strikes across the country. They're not huge, but they're effective when they do manage to, to strike with local people. So I decided to join the IWW and I'm a wobbly, Dave. Perfect, Bob. You did it. You, Tom Morello, Howard Zinn, any other, any other ones out there? Um, there's firm red card holders. There's many of many of them out there. Um, but I will just mention that um, Emma Goldman. We don't think was, but she uh, she really liked the IWW. I wonder why she never joined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe she just didn't like to join stuff. She's an yeah. unjoiner. She's not a joiner. That's a good point. Yeah. That's cool. So, and tell me a little bit more about starting a, your own chapter. Um, you can, like, you pay dues once you join, and the dues are whatever you can afford. And you can get resources, like pe- other people who are in your area, or, you know, how to how to strike and how to think about labor power iww has resources there and then if you get some more action going on then i think there's a possibility of folks from outside the area well can come in and and help support making a strike happen um and i'm not actually in it for that because i'm actually in a my own union um where i work and 
I'm actually just like a, a member, not a like super active person, but I just love the IWW and everything about this union from it's like non-hierarchical from like being very multiracial from the beginning and anarchist and the songbooks. I just love all of that. So that's why I joined. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to join as well. I don't know if I'm going to get to it for about a year, but I think once, uh, yeah, once a little more funds get freed up, I looked into it a little bit too. Cool. Yeah. It seems like a good organization to support at the very least, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, Dave. So that's uh, one thing I've been up to. And I'm, maybe we should talk about the like weathering the political crisis of the last week. I don't know if you're feeling like you want to talk about that. It's, you know, it's old news at this point, but maybe you had uh, some feelings or thoughts about it. Yeah, I, I do, but I don't really know the strongest place to start, but I do feel that there is a lot happening, Bob, and we sit here on a Sunday. Uh, I'm sure that there'll be some calls for impeachment tomorrow. We'll see where that goes. And obviously last Wednesday was the big um terrorism at the capitol and i guess i'm just feeling like the starkness the contrast between what happened last week at the capitol and what happened last summer at uh with all the blm protests and like the difference and the dramatic like imagery that i've been seeing about the two the like how it's happened has been kind of eye opening too, you know. And it's like the hypocrisy is just so real and so strong that um, it's almost, in some ways, I feel like well, you can't ignore these the systematic racism that's happening. You can't be like, yep, see, these two groups were treated the same by cops, by the president, by systems of power, everything is just set up to destroy people of color in this country. And that's just like so apparent. And I feel like when you look at it from that lens, it's there's like a sense of like, hey, you can't you can't ignore this anymore. And that feels good to me. And <clears throat> I think the other thing I want to talk about a little bit is the idea that when a lot of the imagery has been like of a little bit of like buffoonery or tomfoolery, meaning like, oh yeah, let's put the guy with like the Viking hat or the Davy Crockett hat on the cover, you know, and he seems to be grabbing a lot of the attention. But there was a lot of people at this protest. It's a lot of different groups that came together to cause this this act of terrorism. And I feel like it's important to to note that there's a lot of people that were like very well trained that were going to do some pretty intense and fucked up shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And only I, I'm hearing a little bit about that from the mainstream sources now, but you're right. The first focus was on the tomfoolery aspect, but that's just so misses the point. You're right. Yeah. Like, um, and, and they did like, they killed a police officer with a fire extinguisher. That's ugly and brutal, right? Yeah. Um, and how, do, like, where's your blue lives matter now? Yeah. Why are we um, seeing more of that? You know, like, if you see a blue lives matter flag, that's just a flag of like, I'm racist. I hate black people. That's what that flag means to me. Yeah. Agreed. Mm -hmm. I've been seeing the meme going around that, you know, blue lives still don't exist. It just means that you don't like black people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything else that you want to add to it, Bob? Um, one more thing was, I'm curious how, I don't really know how it ended. Like 
why it went from, I remember following it. It was like, I thought it was going to be like a, a siege that lasted at least a few days. Um, and you know, what actually happened to bring it back? And like so much of the footage is just like, they're just ransacking everything, you know, and they're, there's like thousands of them. Um, so do you know anything about like how it actually got quelled? No, I don't. That's a great question. Yeah, that's, I will say that I'm not like totally tuned into new sources, especially this week being a, a week back in the old office working hard or hardly working. Um, but yeah, I feel like I haven't had a whole lot of time to like put energy towards this. Yeah. So a lot of my information has come from you or from Instagram or from uh, just other sources of like talking to people throughout the week. So I haven't really been tuned into the major news sources. I, I guess a little bit of the New York Times, but not a lot. What's your... um? I will say another thing that I've been seeing today has been the idea of why does impeachment matter? Like why? Like, and I even said this, like what's, what's one week or two weeks really going to change that much. But I think that there's a, the thing that really struck me was the fact that, you know, Donald Trump, if he does get impeached, he he would end up missing out on his pension, which is $200,000 a year for the rest of his life. And also other things like being able to run for re-election or I think there's one other thing that he would really lose out on a piece of power that comes from ending a presidency in favorable terms. Yeah. But, uh, the getting like CIA briefing or like intelligence briefings for the rest of your life. Right. Right. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's definitely brought up a lot of these emotions from last summer. And I would say that a lot of that feeling, it didn't go away, but like it definitely feels like it got suppressed a little bit over the last few months as we were mostly focused on the election. Yeah. And I feel like it feels like issues of race are back in the mainstream. I'm, I feel happy about that as well. Um, because I don't want that conversation to stop. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it, um, you know, like, I feel like moderates and liberals always like forget about how bad racism is. So they like, are like, ah, oh, yeah, we probably did enough last summer, but, um, this always, just things like this are like, nope, not even close. Like, so yeah, hopefully more progressive, you know, this, this will ignite progressive movements again. This is like the pendulum that goes back and forth. Definitely. Uh I I think it's going to radicalize in a way that a BLM protest might not have. Like it's going to take the, like, I feel like our country as a whole, like is, just leans a little like politically leans more towards the right and people like you know joe biden is like term seen as like being a little left-leaning but i see him as like almost being right-leaning with his political views you know Mm -hmm. of and i feel like maybe this is gonna like open more eyes and provide a little more fire for those people that like were kind of waffling in the middle yeah, I don't know. I think it's maybe not. And I also, I did come across another quote that I want to share that I really think is important because I feel like this is kind of, kind of relates to what we're talking about, but it's from Ibram Kendi. And it says, the only way to undo racism is to co- consistently identify and describe it and then dismantle it. And I feel like we as a country need to consistently identify that and consistently ide- uh, describe it. Because when it when it does leave our mind frame, then it's harder to like uh, put it as an importance in our day to day. I know that like we as a country and me as a person don't always do the best job of taking the next step, which is and then dismantle it, you know. But I do feel like 
when the more and more that we identify racist acts and racism happening in the U.S., then the more chances we'll have to dismantle it, you know? Yeah. I would say to that, like, I think the issue is then, because we're talking about that quote after this action, it's like, it's obvious that this is racist, but what about all the subtle forms of racism that lead to this is the, I think, harder work. Yeah. Can you describe that a little bit more? I agree. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like when, like the, one of the messages coming out of the movements last summer is that the police need to be defunded. And, you know, when people like say that that's divisive or, they don't pick up on that as politicians and make actions like work on that. Like that's a form of racism. Yeah. Right. Like the not working on these like so-called controversial uh, efforts, you know, but that's what is at the root um, of, you know, a flare up of, like of this type of white white supremacy, but like the structural white supremacy that's a lot more operating all the time in many different ways. That's like the harder part to to name as racist. Like when someone says, um, I don't know, just like dismisses um, Black Lives Matter or. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like as white people, like I feel like if we're not doing something every single day to like deepen our enmeshment in anti-racist struggles, then that's a form of racism because it will perpetuate all these things. Yeah, I like that. And I feel like that's a good message to have and a good mantra to hold in 2021. Yeah. To be like, be fired up now, but like also be fired up three months from now when like people are talking about who knows what, you know, like they're talking about like, I don't know, some weird thing somewhere else or maybe not even a weird thing, but something that's not um, like overtly around race. Right. Oh, I do feel a little bit of hope from Georgia. That feels nice. Yeah. That was a, a bit of a surprise that, yeah, a few weeks before that, it actually, yeah, I, I was surprised that both the Democrats won. I think it's a really positive thing. Yeah. And you were also saying that, and I don't know if this is exact, or I might be misquoting you, but something about the senator from Alaska thinking about flipping as well. Oh, yeah. The Murkowski, who's a Republican, came out and said that not exactly, but pretty close to saying like she would vote for um, like to uphold the impeachment. If the House impeaches, she would like indict or, or um, you know, like whatever the next step is that the Senate does remove. Um, right. And yeah, they were also saying that like she might leave the Republican Party. Um, which is something. Yeah. I don't know. Like who knows? She's like fairly conservative anyway. So I'm not sure how much that would mean, but maybe it would mean a fair amount here and there, you know? Yeah. I think it's important to think about those moments of crossing party lines because I don't know if it's happened at all since Obama has been elected or was elected, uh, you know, yeah. years ago. I feel like, and I don't really follow politics super closely, but I will say that it feels like that idea of crossing party lines hasn't happened in a long, long time. And it'd be, it's an, it's an issue with what, with politics right now. Yeah. That's a good point that it hasn't had it. So if someone does it, maybe a few more people would do it. And yeah, it, it could be a little bit of a, a boost around certain issues for sure. Yeah. There it is. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. 
Thanks for talking about that, Dave. Um, anything else happened that you really wanted to tell the listeners before we got into season five and talk about our theme? I just think it's been a good week for me. I've been able to connect with a lot of people that I haven't talked to in a while. And I just wanted to relay the fact that I had a wonderful conversation with uh, the mysterioso Nick Cantrick. And it was really great to touch base with him. And not only that, but it was, I got a mysterious, speaking of the mysterious, I got a mysterious package in the mail. Oh, wow. A, just a really shoddy wrapped plastic bag. And inside the plastic bag was a jigsaw puzzle of a bunch of cats. <laughs> no way. And it turns out it was from none other than Jen Grilly. So oh, yes. I've, I've been having a lot of fun connecting with those Vermonters out there. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. She called it a, a cross, cross-country prank of the highest order. And me and Julia are devising how to get back for that jigsaw puzzle prank. That's a good one. I like good, clean pranks. Oh, and one more thing. Yeah. Another Vermont connection participated in um friend of the show, Katie Gillespie, hosted a great British Zoom bake-off. Oh, my. We, everyone that came was supposed to bake something that was related to their family and had meaning in the family. And there was three different categories of winners. One was the fan favorite and one was the overall, or what is it called? The star baker. Yeah. And the final one was like, um, just like most, most heart wrenching story or whatever. Best story. Maybe. <laughs> um, but it was a it was a really good Zoom call, and I would highly recommend it to anyone that wants to host a Zoom off. Is to it was just like a it felt like sweet and interesting, and it was fun to watch what people baked and look at all their their food that they had. And did you did you also participate? Did you do some baking? I did not. I um, Julie did so. She was, I was just so busy. I had a long day of school and lesson planning and just like so much going on this weekend. So, but Julie took up the mantle and baked some cookies, but neither of us really read the email and we forgot that it was supposed to be um, related to the family. So uh, our story was not as good as it could have been, but we still had lovely peanut butter cookies with Hershey kisses in them. Oh, nice. Did you win any awards? Um, no, but Julie, if there was an award for best British accent, it probably would have gone to Julie. Yeah, she did wonderful with that. But yeah, it was great. So I just wanted to throw all those shout outs out there and yeah, just say that it was a good week to connect with those Vermonters. Beautiful. Yeah, the Vermont, it, I, it's interesting that you lived there for five years and just such a, a big part of who you are. So I imagine, you know, it's probably something that you miss and it's, yeah, I bet you'd love to, uh, you know, travel back to Vermont and spend some time there. Yeah. I was, I was thinking it might happen this summer, but I just don't know. It probably not. <laughs> There's a lot happening. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll see. It depends. I guess I'll give even more updates. It looks like Colorado like pushed teachers up into a bracket. So teachers are now in what's called one B. Um, so we are, it's looking like we'll most likely get vaccinated in mid February as teachers uh. in Colorado. And I, I'm, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of hope there. I will say from what I've heard, the vaccination is very much targeted towards COVID-19. And I don't think it has a lot of potential to fight off mutations. Um, meaning that 
as COVID starts to mutate and I don't know how stable it is. Like I know from what I've heard, like a disease like HIV AIDS is really has a lot of mutations. And um, that's also like another reason that it's been a hard, extremely hard vaccine to create for HIV AIDS because it mutates so rapidly. And I think COVID's more stable than that. From what I've heard, it's like a lot more stable than HIV AIDS, but yeah, I, I don't know. So I, I, there's a a sense of like, okay, like maybe we can get this under control. Maybe I'll be okay. But like, I'm wondering too, for how long, although I did hear that in, uh, at Emory college at the CDC, they're working on like the stage two of the vaccine, which would be able to fight off a lot more of the mutations, but mm-hmm. who knows how long, how far off that is. Yeah. Sorry. There's still so many questions around vaccination. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't have a ton of information. A lot of this is coming from Malcolm Gladwell's uh, podcast called revisionist history. And oh, I, I didn't know that he talks about it. D- does he have some new episodes out? Yeah, he came out with some mid-December. So like right around Christmas, he came out with a two-parter. He didn't, it's not like a new season. He finished season five, like October, I believe. But uh, yeah, he came out with two new episodes. And I, it's mostly just like listener mailbag stuff, but he he's reporting from Emory College in Atlanta. And it's it's good stuff. I I recommend it, if especially just to get a little more info on the vaccine. It was helpful for me. Oh, cool. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a good tuned in, Dave. Yeah, we're we're not even in that. That's enough. Not even this season, Bob. No, you just you just like slapped out a tuned in and didn't even blink a lot, blink an eye. Yeah, we're pros at this at this point, Bob. Yep. <laughs> wow, I guess I had a lot to update you on, didn't I? Sure did. Yeah, and we. You know, it's okay because this is the first episode of our new season. And yeah, it is. we weren't really getting into, we were not going to really get into any meat and potatoes this week, but we did want to kind of lay out the outline. Does that feel all right to you to get into, Bum? Yeah. Um, if I may use the metaphor, we want to set the table for the season. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Someone clipped that out. We'll see you at the beginning of the show. (laughs) There it is, Dave. There's your sound bite. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Um, Yeah. I, and it kind of feels like I'm avoiding getting in, getting that table set, Bob, but perfect. Oh, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dave, you just set the table. You just set the table right there. Got it set. So do you want to tell? Tell walk us down the the path, Bob, a little bit. Yeah, let me get the silverware out here real quick. So, season five, thriving in dystopia. We we thought about you know we did our show last week, thinking about the highs and lows of our show over last uh, year. And season three was a a real good one, really hit. You know, I think that might have been when we really hitting on our most gears and we did isolation basically, or like being separated, separated was the theme. And so that's a hard theme, but we, we sort of did some thriving within it. So we thought, Oh yeah, why don't we try for a hard theme like that again? And we just started talking about things and um, this, that, and the other. And the, the, the theme that sort of came out of that was the idea of avoidance and all the things that, you know, you and I avoid, but likely a lot of people just avoid things that are hard and things that are scary or things that just really are off-putting. And so it seems like a pretty rich theme and, um, that, yeah, so that's where we're, we're, what we're thinking about. Um, and maybe you can, bring a, a little bit more detail to that, Dave, um, that I, I might've missed out. Yeah. I feel like it doesn't really feel like a trait. Like it doesn't really feel like something that 
speaks to me or like I feel strongly connected to this idea of avoidance. But I also feel like it doesn't get talked about very much, which was kind of interesting to me. And we inevitably, like we could do a show on like anger, but like where would that get us? I feel like the books on anger are like deep and well varied and like not even worth really you and I talking about, but uh, probably season six anyways. Um, But (laughs) I don't know. Avoidance feels like a kind of like mysterious in a lot of ways. And like, what does, like, what do we avoid? What do we confront? I feel like is for me, I'm also going to be thinking this season a lot about what we confront and what we avoid. Cause I feel like confrontation is kind of the, the opposite of avoidance. And a long, long time ago, you talked a little bit about, it might've been a new year's resolution that you had in the, the mid teens, Bob, where you talked about inviting confrontation and not shying away from the difficult. And I feel like that's something that I'm thinking about a little bit, but I'm also, I don't, really want to label that like confrontation as good or bad. I don't want to label avoidance as good or bad or like use those terms. But I think inevitably we're going to throughout this, <laughs> these weeks. Um, and I think that there's a lot of like importance in this idea of like playing it safe or like getting away from, from a, from like the tasks or I I think also avoidance can be related a little bit to isolation and being away and being away from this world. And sometimes it goes back to this, this idea that we we've talked about in our group of friends for a really long time is do we live like, should we live in a rural place where we can put the world away from us? And we can like sustain ourselves off the land and sort of create like a utopia life. Or do we live in the, the rural or the urban, the suburban? Um, do we live in the city? Do we live in the place where we can affect change? Do we invite the world to us every day and make sure that like the, like every step we take is a step towards creating a better world for everybody. And that's been a, you know, a hard question, urban or rural. And um, I, I feel like we'll probably walk down that path a little bit as we go, but keeping a lot of that in mind of like the lives we live and what we decide to confront and what we decide to avoid and why. And yeah, um, I think it'd be okay too, Bob, if you want to talk a little bit about some of the sub themes that we're going to get into. Yeah, that was good, Dave. Yeah. I appreciated all that. Before I get into the sub themes, when you were talking about avoidance and confrontation, I was thinking about, yeah, let, let's dig into avoidance a bit here and think about like what is maybe like good and what is bad about avoidance. And two things come up for me. The first is like, thinking about avoiding in a very like maybe elementary way or fundamental way is like that if there's like um, something like in a physical way, whereas if there's like a, just for the sake of an example, like traffic in one part of the city, but you have to get somewhere, you, you, you might avoid that part of the city um, in order to get where you want to go. And I'd say that's like a, maybe a positive use of avoidance or like why, you know, people might avoid something um, to like not get bogged down. And um, yeah, so that, I, that, I guess that's where it starts. But then I'm thinking of it further and not like a physical avoidance, but more of like a, something in one's life like a little bit more of a psychological avoidance of like, let's say I um, have to write an email to someone that it has like some stuff in it. That's like, I, I, I really think, feel like it has to be said, but it's hard to say it. Then, um, you know, 
I'll be like, hey, yeah, I'll write it tomorrow. I, I need to focus on my reading today. And then tomorrow comes and like I maybe I like did a run and got a phone call from someone and I didn't write it again. And it's like, like when does like putting it off become avoiding it, you know? Um, and then I think that is like I do at some point really want to get into that, that moment of like, oh, I'm not just like not doing it because it's second on my to-do list. I'm like actually actively pushing it down my to-do list. And uh, like that is avoidance. So I'm interested in talking about that at mm-hmm. some point. Um, yeah. And before I go into the subtopics for this season, do you have any like thoughts on just this like broader topic of the good and the bad of avoidance? Yeah. I feel like sometimes it's necessary to avoid. Sometimes it's necessary to put off. And sometimes there's a lot of healing that can be done with not pushing to be or not confront not confronting immediately. And I feel like some people maybe will like snap to needing to like find resolution, right? And they'll be like, I need, we need to confront this. We need to like dig deep into this. And I feel like sometimes with my emotions, like I feel like I want to find resolution really fast because like feeling mired in grossness or like pain or sadness or anger or depression and like having that be like sitting with that is really hard. And I want to like work through it. But I feel like sometimes it's like, sometimes we need to avoid like finding that resolution in like a personal relationship because I feel, or or conflict, um, because sitting with pain can sometimes bring a lot of perspective and sitting with pain can bring a new outlook and yeah i'm not very good at that i am really good at avoiding conflict (laughs) i'm good at avoiding like hard conversations and that doesn't feel good and that's something that i feel like a lot of oh what's the word a lot of like guilt almost about Mm -hmm. and you know rounding full circle I feel like I haven't ever really put myself in a political conversation with someone that is coming from a totally different spot than me and really really confronted that I've more often than not, I've avoided that because it's really scary. And there's a lot of people out there that do it on the daily. And I have a lot of, oh, I guess a lot of like pride and love for the people that are like, yeah, I mean, and I guess to a lot of these people are just like pushing their own I- ideals towards other people. And that's not what I want to say, but like the people that are out there really listening, I I really love that perspective. And yeah, so I guess really what I'm trying to talk in a roundabout way all about is that, yeah, there is no qualifier here This on this show. And there's nothing that I really want to say like, this is good, this is bad. Because I think a lot of it is like human nature and a lot of it is like protecting ourselves for a battle later or, you know, getting into the thick of it because that's what we need. And I just want to kind of like dig deep into this a little bit and find out some epiphanies because I feel like that's one of my favorite things that's happened on this show is having those moments of like, Oh, that's what I've been doing. And I want to like take some realization to that. And I feel like that will happen with these topics. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think they're just like really, really important. And 
when we think about it, we can like, I think for me, I think there's like a difference between like sitting with pain, for example, uh, or like giving something it's like space versus avoidance. Like, um, like I think avoidance, at least of this like psychological avoidance of not dealing with a psychological stressor. Um, I think that, um, yeah, is like different and, but it's a, it's a fine line. Like, and I want to, I'm interested in drawing out the nuances of that when, when something that might be adaptive or healthy turns into something that's like less healthy or like maladaptive. Um, so maybe I'll just mention that that is like one topic that we'll get into. Um, like, Avoidance versus confrontation. Another topic is particularly like tough conversations that you, you mentioned, like maybe tough political conversations. Um, and I want to bring up the idea of principled struggle in that, that show. We want to get into procrastination as a form of avoidance and looking at that. We might do a two-parter on disgusting things. That which is disgusting or gross gets avoided and uh, curious to get our, our hands dirty in that one. Uh, another one is in-group, out-group, um, like avoiding the out-group. So thinking about like social power and social structures with avoidance. Um, oh, yeah. Earlier, we might talk about like playing it safe, avoiding dangerous things. I've Two more here. One is coming back to things that were avoided, like maybe days, weeks, months, or years have passed. Like, can you go back to something that was previously avoided? And then the last one, Dave, is avoid the noid. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, well, we'll have to see what happens with that. But I'm glad that that made the list, Bob. Yeah. For folks who are wondering what that, what the heck that is. Um, the Noid is a character of Domino's Pizza of the early 90s, maybe late 80s. And yeah, you, you wanted to avoid that Noid. You didn't want that Noid to get you. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to walking down this path with you, Bob. Yep, me too, Dave. I think it'll be great and important, but maybe hard. Yeah. And I think that's a good spot. Yeah, I think so too, Dave. And then we have a season five dessert. And oh. I think you're, you, you have the better idea of the dessert. So please, Dave. Sure. Let's, uh, let's get a little song for you. Butterfly effect in the sky. A clockwork orange in the ground. Philip K. Dick. H.G. Wells, it's a dystopian rainbow. <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Oh, yeah. Oh, I should have mentioned 1984 in there somewhere. Well, Bob, I feel like sometimes I miss talking about like dystopia. The I know basically everything we talk about happens in this dystopia of the world we live in, but I do feel like some of the roots of this show are comparing our world to the dystopian world, or at least just talking about some dystopia each week. And one of the things I wanted to do was take a peek at a dystopia each week. And this week, the dystopia that I wanted to bring to the table is a book by Lois Lowry called The Giver. Ooh, and I don't really know what I'm going to do with this, but I will just give a quick analysis. It takes place, and this is all from memory, so um, forgive me if I miss it, but it takes place in a world where there's no longer color, and there's also no longer memories. And, or not memories, but like a cultural memory. And what happens... It, what's what's happened is there's this 
person called the giver who holds all those memories. And as each generation passes, the giver, the new giver is selected from the job list as classic dystopian fiction. Um, you, you get up in front of your whole community and you are assigned a job by that community. And the main protagonist is a young kid who has been tasked with becoming the, the next giver. And so his job is to hold all the memories and he starts to see these ideas of color and like what ice cream tastes like. And I remember part of the reason I wanted to, I was thinking about this book is like, I was wondering if it still holds up. I was wondering if this is a book that would have meaning for the kids that I teach. And I do know that like Lois Lowry can be, she has a, I mean, she's a great author, of course, but I kind of feel like the giver might not be, might not quite have the the radical edge or the grit that for the generation of kids living now. And one of my thoughts was that it feels like it feels like it's just like a happy little ending. And I feel like, I mean, I'm spoiling it a little bit, but if you haven't read The Giver, it's too late for you. Um, Yeah, I feel like it ends with the main character like escaping on a sled. That's my memory of it. And that might be wrong, but it, I just feel like there's nothing at stake. And it feels really whitewashed, this book to me. Mm. Um, And. I don't know. I'm I'm just curious to hear some of your thoughts too, Bob. Like, do you have any ideas of what the giver meant to you as a kid? Or like, do you think it would still hold up? I don't know. You know, so I read that book, I think in seventh grade and I enjoyed your summary of it right here. My issue is like, I just don't remember it well enough. It's it like has like vague. So I couldn't really say, if it like had critical edge or like, all I can say is I remember liking it. Like I, I read it and I was like, Oh, that's a cool book. And I remember like, it didn't really stick with me, you know, like I don't really remember the main point. So yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm just like grasping at straws here to, to mention something. Cause I know I read that book, but um, I, I think that's a cool thought or like an interesting thought that like, does it stand up? Like some things are really well written for that moment, but don't stand up. And um, I'm curious about that too. So I, I, I like that you bring up that question. Yeah. Well, as always, we'll just keep it short at the end here because just a little tidbit, but I'm sure most everyone who's listening has read The Giver and probably has some thoughts popping up for them. Yeah. And I hope someone's read it and it's just like, that is dead wrong. Like the giver is a classic. It will always be a classic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That'd be great. I mean, but here's the thing. I don't even know when it was written. I want to say like the eighties, right? Um, it says, uh, I'm looking at it here. 1993. George Orwell wrote 1984 in 1948. And I feel, I might, I might get my year wrong a little bit there, but like, can you imagine a book holding up for a century? Can you imagine anything that you wrote right now to hold up for a century? And yeah. Even if The Giver does hold up, which it probably holds up okay, but I'm sure there's some like, like kind of moments of like, eh, that's not that great. But like, I am just blown away by like what, what promotes longevity and. Or like, yeah, why do we keep coming back to some things, but like leave other things in the dust? Anyhow. Yeah, like that question. That can be something that guides us in the old dystopian rainbow part of the show. Yeah. Do you think anyone will listen to this podcast in 20 years? No. No. (laughs) Certainly not, right? (laughs) What if what we're saying here is like really just like, becomes prophetic and you know eternalized and people make a religion based on thriving in dystopia (laughs) 
Oh, Davy boy. Davy boy. Sometimes you got it. Sometimes you really got it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the old dystopian rainbow. Love it. Nice starter, Dave. Appreciate that. Well, maybe I'll give folks the coordinates and then we'll pack it up. So you can email us at Dave Peachtree, all one word, at gmail.com. Find us at Instagram, thriving underscore in underscore dystopia. Twitter is at bmaze19. And then we have our website, thrivingindystopia.com. Love it. All right, Bob. Thanks for the great starter. See you next week. Time to get it going again, Dave. Have a great week, buddy. Yeah. Love you, Bob. (laughs) Love you, Dave. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. And finally, our new outro song is Bashful by Ketza. See you next week.